0: Welcome to episode 21 of Perspectives Unsettled, a podcast that exists to challenge our assumptions about faith and move the average Christian from status quo into boldness in action. I am your host, Emily Luttrell.
1: And I'm Ben Stewart.
0: And we're here with our friend from Missoula, Montana, Scott Cloud.
1: woo What's up, Scott? Hey,
2: guys. <laughs> and we're going to play Catan and Lord of the Rings Trivial pursuit, I guess,
1: that's, that's right. Sure. Yes. Yeah. So for the listener who can't see, our, our really ghetto setup for microphones is being...
0: Supported by multiple board games right now. Yep. Yep. So we've got Catan, Apples to Apples Jr.
1: It's a much more fun version, actually.
0: I doubt that, but yeah. okay. Okay, whatever. Fine.
2: <laughs> Trivial Pursuit,
0: Lore of the Rings edition. The best. Of course.
2: So if there was ever a plug for you guys needing money, this is it. <laughs> please sponsor us. So if you're, that's so if right. you're listening to this, please follow them on Patreon and uh, send large checks. These people can't afford podiums. <laughs> we
1: just need mic stands that are one foot longer, and that's it.
2: Right, yeah. We're not, not know, asking you're
1: little, for like, a lot, people. Your little midget mic stands, I <laughs> you know, like that.
2: These are great. Well, I'm glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's I'm
0: ex- I'm excited about our topic, um, which is very festive and appropriate for the Christmas season um, <laughs> of hell. <laughs> yes,
1: we're talking about hell as we lead up to Christmas. Right. What better topic during the Advent season? Right. Yep. Uh,
0: but before we get too into that, let's have a, a classic patented Ben Stewart icebreaker.
1: Yes. So Ooh, here we go from his youth days. I know. That's right. Yep. Stupid youth pastor questions. Um, yeah. I know that this topic of hell is a controversial topic. So I thought I would start with something even more controversial <laughs> so sure. that it feels like everything from this point forward is, you know, more chill,
0: lower the stakes a little bit. That's right. Yeah. So
1: best Christmas movie. Ooh. In your opinion. Oh, I already know. Okay. Okay.
0: The Muppet Christmas Carol.
1: Wow, can't that can't is be the beat. wrong answer. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> that is the wrong answer. It's The okay, best adaptation. so give us one reason why you poor you chose poorly.
0: Um, it. Cho- I chose the best. It is the best adaptation. Like even from a literary perspective, the best adaptation of a Christmas Carol. Kermit the Frog is Bob Cratchit. You can't beat him. Tiny Tim. They sing a song together. It's very heartwarming. Oh my gosh. It's the best Whoa. one
1: unbelievable
0: i watched it twice already this year. like i said
1: this is going to be a controversial question so
2: yeah mm. emily might go to hell <laughs> for
1: yeah for that yeah we'll have to bring we're gonna to have to bring this i back think that's somewhere in the, in the nicene creed of like <laughs>
2: muppet christmas carol yeah. a
1: few years of purgatory. wow wow all right well scott can you redeem this
2: the best christmas movie of all time is national lampoon's christmas vacation <laughs> that's the best Christmas movie. Cause it has all the feels. Yes. Uh, I actually liked um, FX did a Christmas carol a few years ago with the dude. I can't remember his name. He was married to Madonna. <laughs> uh, uh, Guy Ritchie.
1: Oh, huh. It, that weird. was weird. That's interesting. It was,
2: it was excellent. It was definitely R rated. Uh, but it was, it was really well done. That's probably up there for me. And then, I re- I still enjoy a Christmas story too with little Ralphie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I still like that one. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's a good but one.
2: I'm trying to think uh those are pretty much the only two I watch. <laughs> National Lampoon's and The Christmas Story.
1: Well, I I was probably would have said National Lamp- Lampoons as well. So to say something different, I will also say It's a Wonderful Life, which The new or the old one? The old, the original with Jimmy Stewart. Like to me, you just can't get more classy than Jimmy Stewart. So mm-hmm. um, that voice. Yeah, exactly. It's I
2: a, honestly don't know if I've ever watched. It's
1: a wonderful life. It's a tearjerker. It's a tearjerker. Tear I think
0: I've only watched the whole movie like once. And I didn't realize that like the first hour and a half has nothing to do with like <laughs> Christmas or yeah. him not it's living. Just about, yeah. It's yeah. just like his life. Exactly. Yeah, it's just yeah. his whole life. Um, Yeah. I, I mean, I I'm not convinced I think Muppets is still number one, but I respect your wrong I can't, choices. I can't
1: think of a, mo- a Christmas movie that would be less than the Muppets one. Like every other movie, what? including It's a Wonderful Life, what? is better than. so. No,
0: this is the hill I'm going to die on.
1: Wow. We need, to, we, we need to move on and talk about something <laughs> less controversial.
0: The First Great Awakening was an evangelical revival that took the North American colonies by storm in the 1730s and 40s. It had an incredible impact on Christian denominations at the time, and really is a big foundational piece of American evangelicalism. One of the most famous sermons that came from the Great Awakening was by Jonathan Edwards, who is problematic in his own right by being both a minister and a slave owner. And his sermon was called Sinners in the Hand of an Angry God. Here are a couple lines from that sermon. The god that holds you over the pit of hell, as much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you're in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about it and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. I thought it was funny that Wikipedia said the sermon was delivered to his congregation, quote, to profound effect. (laughs) Like, yeah, no kidding. It can be easy to write this off as something old and extreme and on the fringes of a culture, but it would be a mistake to try and diminish its impact. This is something that I had to read in a high school literature class. And though it may sound extreme to just put it out there like this, it really isn't all that different from what most Christians today think of when they think of hell. Hell is a very evocative term, but the imagery it inspires comes more from our culture than it does from scripture. It comes from Dante's Inferno or Puritan Sermons or an episode of The Simpsons. On this episode, we're talking with our friend Scott Clout from Zootown Church in Missoula, Montana. And we're asking questions like, what does the Bible actually say about hell and the afterlife? How do our views of hell impact the importance of international missions? And if we're wrong about hell and if universal salvation is possible, why does anybody bother to do missions or evangelize? We know this is a very... Divisive topic, and one that a lot of people have really intense uh, opinions and emotional connections to. This is a topic that we as individuals are still thinking about and still working through, and it will probably be a very long process before any one of us comes down determinedly on any side. The point of this podcast is not to try to promote one view over the others or try to say this is what Uncharted believes but rather just starting a conversation and asking questions and seeing how this really important belief in our faith does impact our day-to-day life and impacts international missions. This is going to be a two-part episode because once we started talking about this, we realized there's no way we're going to be able to finish our conversation in the length of time that would just be one podcast episode. So this is just the introduction to the topic. And next month, we'll finish the conversation.
1: So maybe let's give a little context for why you, Scott, are part of this call. I mean, first and foremost, you're a friend. You and I have uh, had a great friendship for many years now, spanning different iterations of ministry and all that good stuff. Um, and then there's uh, you know, a partnership between our organizations as well, between Zootown Church and Uncharted International. You guys have been a very kind, faithful, supportive, loyal um friend and partner to us as an organization and and believe in who we are. And it goes both ways. You know, very much believe in who you guys are too, your leadership, um, the staff you have around you, the the church that you guys are, the impact that you're having in Missoula, Montana and beyond. Um, and then selfishly super grateful for an excuse to go out to Montana um because that's just <laughs> an amazing experience. So but I know that over the last few years, both you personally, and then as a result of that, um, the the church that you help oversee, has gone through different different journeys, if you will, on different theologies and ideologies and and all of that. So, um, first of all, I just want to say how much we respect you guys and the place of safety that you've created, and openness and honesty that you've created at in your church to say, we're going to have these discussions, not just in secret corners, but we're going to have these discussions out in the open. And, you know, without getting into all the, the detail of it, I know that that's, that's come at a cost to you guys, um, but really do respect that, you know, you, you demonstrate how churches can have open, truly open and honest dialogue about controversial things. So kudos to you guys for that. Um, and one of those topics was the topic of hell. So, um, maybe we can start there and just, and just ask a couple of questions. Why did Zootown go through, you did a series several months ago. Um, what was it? Three, three week series, four week series covering the topic of hell. Um, why did you guys choose to do that? And what sort of impact did that have on you personally? And then also the people around you?
2: uh well first just on jonathan edwards um (laughs) yeah so he he had a tough congregation too in in his defense uh his congregation was basically going awry and there was a lot of fighting and all kinds of stuff from whatever we're told you know from the historians in that so that was a scare tactic on his part Mm. Um, and it did work. It did work. Um, <laughs> that actually launched a revival, uh, throughout much of the world in that. Um, but there's a, I don't know if they still do it, but there's a Christian school in Missoula who, um, we, you know, I know people who went to school there mm-hmm. and they said they were, they had to read that book when they were like in junior high Wow. Mm-hmm. and, uh, or that sermon, yeah. you know, they had to read that sermon and, I don't know, um, how that affects adults in a way, but I know as a child, if you read that sermon, I feel like that's spiritual abuse actually. Um, and I don't know what the fruit of that is, you know, like just because there was a re- revival, we use that word so loosely by the way, but just because there, are like, what, what is a, what constitutes a revival, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Um, It's usually people just say it's numbers, right? And I don't know if that's what revival Mm. really is. But um, so I use that term pretty loosely as well. But what is the actual fruit of that? Mm. What was the fruit of how did that last? And I don't feel like it lasted. Um, You can scare anybody into anything. You're watching it in 2020, 2021, and probably through 2030. (laughs) Who knows how long this goes? (laughs) But that that's, it was a fear tactic to motivate people. And I just, I don't see Jesus doing that when you mm-hmm. really look at the history of hell. Um, and so how, the reason we did that sermon was kind of like you said, is we wanted to just get the topic out in the open. Um, we went through a church split and um, that topic was discussed in the community um, amongst other churches meaning about ZooTown and about me. Um, and so I decided to do that simply to get it out in the open because I was personally tired of the emails. I was tired of, uh, I mean, just weird conversations that would happen out in public too, people I didn't even know, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so it became like this huge gossip slander thing um, within the city of Missoula. And so I decided like, okay, I'm just gonna get this out in the open it's on video now. So then people can decide for themselves. And so that was probably five years of my studying about the topic. Um, And I was, I was shocked to see that I had been trained in just one certain worldview, like a Western mindset, um, which we all were. And so I don't, I don't ever say that, like saying like how stupid those people are. They just, they just don't know. I I was just having a conversation with (laughs) this uh, guy from my church who's been kind of going through this process as well and he he just talked about how like how do we even read the bible then you know like it's how do we how does the lay person read the bible and the lay person was never actually supposed to read the bible that's what's shocking meaning martin luther did his reformation the printing press came out right at that time i think it was great that the bible was able to be sent out but the early church fathers and stuff, you you weren't really allowed to open the scriptures unless someone else was there. Um, so like, I think it came from Judaism. Judaism, I believe you had to have like 10 people in the room when you were reading the scriptures because there had to be a consensus of ideas and a consensus of topics. Um, and so what I realized is like the topic of hell really came from a few guys um, in the West. And it was just that that's why we have commentary bibles today you got one guy telling you what he thinks about something and i just i think that has caused a lot of damage when it comes to the spirit actually speaking um i always like to use this example like i'm a i'm a white boy from montana (laughs) like my worldview only goes so far you know Mm (laughs) right um and so i don't wanted this to come across as like people are stupid for believing this or anything like that Mm -hmm. but We just decided that, um, historically, there are other views of hell. And so we wanted to get that out there to know that, one, you you know, we've talked about this. You guys work for a missions organization that American evangelicals are in the minority in the world. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: (laughs) Like, they make up a very small percentage of the church in the world. But we hold a tremendous amount of power because of our financial status. And, um, so that was huge for me when I just started looking at that, like we, just cause we have money in social media does not mean we actually have the influence we think we do. Um, and we just, you know, everything revolves around us in, in America, right? We talked about that when you guys were out here and mm-hmm. you guys travel the world and you realize, Hey, there's Christians in Palestine too, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> you know, and, yeah. and so that was, I'm just saying that because that, it was more of like just to, to humble mm-hmm. us as a church and to humble um, the Christian community at large here that like we have been trained in one strain of thought. Um, I don't care if you go get your PhD. If you went and got your PhD from a Reformed Calvinist seminary, you are not hearing the other things. Mm-hmm. Like you're just not hearing that. And I'm not saying that the Calvinists are wrong about everything. I'm not saying. Jonathan Edwards was for sure a Calvinist, but... I'm not saying that they're wrong about everything. I'm just saying they stick to this one main Mm -hmm. worldview. And what I think happens then is we take, we've all done it. We take our ideology and put it into scripture rather than the other way around. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so Jesus was talking to those people at that time. And we forget that, like that, what he has, what he said to those people had to make sense to those people. And So our job is to use the spirit to help translate what Jesus was saying to those people at that time and then apply it to today. But what we do is we always apply it to today and then take it back then 2000 years ago and say, well, this is what these people heard. And that's just that's just unrealistic. And I I always use the the example like I don't even know what the 1950s were like (laughs) in America. Yeah. Like. I have no clue what the lingo was. I mean, I can watch Back to the Future and figure some of it out, I guess, but <laughs> like...
1: I hope that's not your reference point, because I mean, there's, <laughs>
2: there's actually great theology in Back to <laughs> the Future, that's another He podcast, goes back yeah. and but, hits
1: on his mom, so it's <laughs> yeah. a little bit... No, she hit on him, come on. <laughs> okay, now, yeah, that's
2: totally different. Um, Either way. Yeah, so I think that was big.
1: Yeah, and I, I think one of the things, I mean, there was a lot, a lot said there that was good, and one of the things that I would highlight, especially still towards the front of this conversation is in a little bit of reading and studying that I, that I did just in my, on my own, in this, uh, particular conversation, as well as leading up to this interview that for this podcast consistently, the things that I, one of the things that I came across from any author of any era is, is that what you just talked about in terms of this spirit of humility and, um, John, John Stott, uh, you know, read several things by him and frequently he, he had a great line that I'll just basically summarize, but where he, he calls out like any spirit of, um, taking this conversation, um, you know, in in a way that feels indifferent or to use an older term, I think he used the word glibness, however you say that. Mm Um, Mm -hmm. and, and basically just calling out like it, it almost matters more like the heart posture of humility and gentleness in this conversation than, than where you land, if that makes sense. And, uh, so just to, you know, affirm to something that you were saying of kind of regardless of, of how exposed or not we are collectively to the variety of views of, of hell, um, regardless of where we land with those views, maintaining that, that spirit of you know soberness and humility and open-mindedness um it's good
2: well and john stott john stott was pretty much excommunicated from the evangelical community because he became an annihilationist like Mm -hmm. john stott's a genius yeah (laughs) he's a genius and for him to be excommunicated for saying it's a possibility that people you know just are annihilated like they don't exist anymore and it, that's that shows how brazen and um pun intended hell-bent people are in proving eternal conscious torment when you would take a guy that you revered and respected for years and then he has a different view of the afterlife and you just erase him you know try to kick him out of the community he was welcomed back in <laughs> but i think that's what you're, you know i agree with him like there has to be a you, you cannot learn anything unless there's a level of humility which jesus said You know, you cannot put new wine into an old wineskin. You just can't. And we always think that's a one-time thing when we convert. It's not. It's an entire life of stretching and producing new wine and sometimes pouring out the old wine. You know, it's just Jesus clearly told us in Luke, he's like, those who are open will be given more. Those who are closed, what they think they have will be taken from them. And what I usually see people who are so angry about this subject what they think they have is usually taken from them like this peace Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. joy this you know ability to have conversation Mm -hmm. is taken from them and so I think I totally agree with John Stott on that so that makes me a genius too (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: um, yeah so it is a good it is a good example of of how people are responded to, you know, as they talk openly and honestly about this topic. And I know we have a lot of content to cover, but I am, I am curious when you look at just your church, I know that there was the greater Missoula response and, you know, some of that, but when you look at just your church, what, what are two or three words that you would use to describe, how did they go with you on that journey? How did they respond? How did the people who are part of Zootown, uh, travel with you as you went through that processing
2: um not all of them did yeah that was kind of that's another reason we did it just to get it out in the open and talk about it and let people decide for themselves um some people made it through the first sermon and they left Mm -hmm. and um again that just shows how tight of a grip this topic has on people um and i I found that sad because i mean I, i could go listen to anything and it doesn't mean i have to agree with it i can listen to it mm-hmm. you know so to to just bail on it however what we did find was there was a whole other subgroup of people who had been thinking about this for a long time mm. and they they started coming to zoo town because they were allowed to think about it and they were allowed to discuss it this is something that you're not even allowed to discuss i mean Rob Bell, for all the things I might disagree with him on, you know, he writes a book on Love Wins, and before John Piper even read it, he said, goodbye, Rob Bell, on Twitter. That was a huge, it was, what Rob Bell did 10 years ago was bigger than we can ever imagine, because he allowed a whole generation of people to actually ask questions and think about stuff rather than just be told by their pastor who may or may not know what he's talking about. <laughs> mm-hmm. that this is it um so yeah there was a whole other subgroup of people and i'm not just talking about younger people right there's we have a ton of older people who have been studying this for their whole life mm-hmm. and some of these things have never made sense to them but they were just told you know the clobber verse well his ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our... that whole verse is about god's grace mm-hmm. <laughs> and isaiah that if you read before that that whole thing is about god's grace So that verse is not telling people to not think if you don't understand something. It's actually telling you to think and process it out with Jesus. And whatever you think of his grace, it's greater than you can even think about it. And so I think there was this whole other subgroup of people that was thinking about it for a long time. And Zootown just gave them the freedom to talk about it and think about it no matter where they landed. I mean, because, yeah, and we can talk about that, like the implications of it. But
0: yeah. Yeah. So there are a couple like terms we've already put out there. And so let's just go ahead and get into it. Um, So there are kind of like three main views of hell within Christianity. Um, One is annihilation, which we've already referenced, which basically means at some point, like people will go to hell, but they will die. It's not forever. Um, The other would be eternal conscious torment, which is kind of the prevailing cultural idea of hell, which is, you know, being tortured in, West, in the West, in the West, yeah, sorry, with yeah. <laughs> asterisks yeah. beside that. Um, <laughs> and American evangelicalism, the kind of the uh, main idea of there's a hell that exists, and people who don't believe in God go there and they will be tortured for all eternity. Um, and then there's also this idea of ultimate reconciliation, which is kind mm-hmm. of uh, also known as a Christian universalism, uh, which ultimately, in the end, God will restore people to himself not saying that there isn't a hell but people who would go there do not remain there forever or are not killed there um so i know you're you did a three or four week series on this but let's try to sum it up <laughs> in i don't know 20 minutes maybe <laughs> of um just the kind of the main ideas of these three different views maybe where they come from um and the the impli- well we can get into the implications of them later so Let's just start. Let's just start with the eternal conscious torment because mm-hmm. that is the most exciting one to talk about.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I think. Okay, so you can't really get into these until you look at his, the history of them in a way. Um, so I'll try to break that down real quick. And first off, people. You know, people always think I just. I, I hear this a lot, where people say you're just afraid to preach some hard things. <laughs> I preached it for years. So that, that argument always falls flat for me. Cause it's almost like they're calling me a sissy, like, you know, soft gospel when I'm like, I have a track record of like seven years of preaching this. So that wasn't it. And it wasn't like I woke up one day and I was like, you know what? I just feel like not believing in this. Or whatever. <laughs> it actually, it actually came from studying atonement theories, atonement theories. So all my journey started with Dallas Willard's book, um, divine conspiracy mm-hmm. what's amazing is how many people I talked to who read that book and that was the beginning of their journey too so I don't know what it is with that book but when he talks about the kingdom and and he he was asked one time if he was a universalist because everyone always wants to you know brand somebody something and he goes I don't know <laughs> that's all he said you know so. It didn't start, it started with atonement theories when I finally started looking at what like penal substitution, that Jesus was murdered by his father, so it could appease God's wrath. I mean, that just, I always just accepted that because I didn't know there was any other views out there. Mm -hmm. And then I finally realized penal substitution was the, in the minority view of the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean, it just is. Um, So that was the beginning. So I just, in order to talk about this, you got to talk about history. There is nowhere in the Old Testament where it mentions hell once. The King James Version translated it to hell. If you read the history of the King James Version, which I do love the King James Version, the poetry of it, there was some really good theology in there. But basically, King James did it so his subjects would obey him. (laughs) I mean, there was words changed, to because in that culture, the king was next to God, kind of. Like, they had an ultimate authority, so... It was a manipulation tactic in a lot of ways. And so they translated Sheol into hell. Um, There is no reference once to eternal conscious torment in the Old Testament. Not once. Mm -hmm. It was Sheol. And the Jews believed everybody went there. Everybody went to the place of the dead. Even David said, if I go down to Sheol, you are there. So even the whole Western concept that it's separation from God, like he's not there, that's impossible god is he's the infinite in the cosmos you know like that's impossible so and just let's just even go back to the garden he never said because you did this you will surely die and you will be tormented for day and night forever and ever Mm -hmm. he just says you will surely die that was the wages of sin is death not eternal conscious torment the wages of sin is death we're all dying because of sin so that's the punishment you know You would think if hell was eternal and it was this place of torment forever, that would have been mentioned right off the bat (laughs) to every culture. That's like, no, and I'm, I'm serious. That's like telling my son to go play a game that I didn't describe to him what the game was. Mm -hmm. And then when he screws the game up, when he should be throwing a football, but he's got a baseball bat out there. I'm like, sorry, dude, like, (laughs) uh, you're out of the game. You're out of the game now. So That's incredibly important, it really is. For thousands and thousands of years, there was no concept of hell. There was Hades, Sheol, the place of the dead where everybody went. They did believe there was like levels of consciousness there, depending on what you did here. Um, The concept of hell was invented by the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Mm -hmm. And so when the Jews were taken captive into um, Babylon and Assyria, they absorbed some of those beliefs, which is where the Sadducees came from. And, you know, that's why there was this huge fight, even between the Sadducees and the Pharisees, you know, the one believed in the resurrection right? yeah. of the dead, right? So mm-hmm. to say this was just cut and dry because we read the King James Version, that's just, that's not, that's not the history of it. Hades, Hades is the word in Greek for Sheol. It's just the place of the dead. So those words that were translated into hell in the New Testament, there is no such place as hell, the only time hell was it, it was changed. It was Gehenna, the Valley of Hinnon, and it was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. So Mark nine, Mark nine, when he's talking about you know, take cut your hand off, better better go into the kingdom than to um, you know be thrown into hell. The word is Gehenna, and what's interesting about Mark nine? Read Mark nine one. He says some of you will not die before you see the kingdom of God coming in its power. (laughs) He's talking about the cross and the resurrection. Mm -hmm. That's when it happened. So he was warning them that like, what's he say? Your eye, your hand, your feet. He's like, what you see, where you're you're involved, where you're going, that this is going to distract you from the kingdom of God. And in 70 AD, the Romans are going to come. They're going to kill you. And they're going to throw you into the fiery pit of Gehenna. Mm-hmm. And they did. They did. So that was a mistranslated word. And so, and when he says everlasting, and this is so important. Okay. So everlasting, there is no word for eternal in Hebrew or Greek. They, they didn't, it's ages, ages. So eternal is aionios. That's the word. It comes from the Hebrew word olam. Same word, just, you know, and as you guys know, but your listeners might not. At the time of Jesus, the Hebrews were not reading the Hebrew Bible. They were reading the Greek Septuagint. Mm -hmm. Like, the Hebrew Bible was written way after that, actually, because a lot of it got burned in the temple and all kinds of stuff. But they were reading the Greek version of the Hebrew Bible. So that's why eternal got translated from olam. It just means ages, in the next age. It doesn't mean forever and ever and ever. It means in the next age. Um, So that's important. That's really important to understand that because... I don't know if some of those meant in the kingdom age now, or if it meant after you die. I, I really don't know. But what I know is they viewed things in ages. Mm-hmm. So, and I actually just pulled this up. It's, what's really fascinating is the same word was translated ages sometimes, but eternal in other times when it shouldn't have been. So they, the copyist did this. So let's just say we we change that same word in Matthew 28, and I am with you to the end of eternity. That's not what it says to the end of the age. Uh, Luke 6, the sons of eternity are more shrewd. What's he say? The sons of this age are more shrewd. So it's the exact, there's like 20 of those mm-hmm. in the New Testament. So the copyists who were, most of them reformed Calvinists who, who copied our Bibles, ESV, all those, like they chose age in some places, but when they when they talked about hell, they chose eternity. Mm-hmm. It's the same mm-hmm. word. And so it was a mistranslation. To, because they went into it with an already preset ideological view of eternal conscious torment, mm. and so, but it's it's just it's it's really reckless and irresponsible to be honest with you mm. that to take a word that means age and make it eternity, that word and how do they know this? They study Aristotle, Plato, and how they use that word. They use that word in ages of time. They didn't use it for eternity, and so they can take writers of that era knowing the thought of that era. And that word actually eternity is a substance word. It's not necessarily a time word. It means it's going to fulfill its duty. So like whatever the fire is, it's not going out until it accomplishes what it was meant to accomplish. That's really what that is referring to. So Eternal conscious torment is the view that um, those who reject Christ, and again, we, we, we should take a section to talk about the logic of some of these things, but we'll just talk scripture. Those who reject Christ, um, and Ben and I were actually in a denomination that taught us even those who didn't hear the good news were going to burn in hell for all eternity. That was one of my questions on my accreditation, is do you believe that those who don't hear the gospel will spend eternity in hell? And Which I lied.
1: Is which is really a subset <laughs> conversation to this, to to this conversation of hell, and I think we even have some questions that mm-hmm. kind of get to okay, that. I'm
2: sorry. I'm sorry. So, anyways, no, 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 no I'm just
1: saying, like, just to just to point out exactly what you're saying is they are very much connected.
2: Yeah. I'm sorry. I got off the rails. So, but I, that history is so important mm-hmm. to, to you know to, to say that there was no concept of eternal hell in the Old Testament is incredibly important. But those who reject Christ or don't know Christ will be tormented day and night for all of eternity.
1: So a couple of thoughts on that and and feel like questions slash things that I've been learning. Feel free to comment either of you is um, one of the things, again, just looking at different sources, different, different authors, both current and older. One of the things that seems to keep reoccurring is an affirmation. So like on the one hand, Scott, where you say where you talk about the specific use of the word hell in the Old Testament isn't isn't there? Would you would you um, do you th- would you agree though that in the Old Testament there are places that talk about just the concept of punishment and the concept of um, like even your reference to the garden? You know that there's a there's yes. a lot of things that God doesn't say specifically, you know, um, like he didn't specifically talk about one particular view of hell or, or what have you, but that there is woven, there is woven throughout the old Testament, the concept of not just brokenness from relationship with God, but subsequently the consequence of, of that. Yes. Cause, cause that's one thing that I've been struck with as just a little study I've done with this is that a a lot of the views of hell, and to use that word super broadly, even though there's a lot of differences, like one of the things that's one of the common grounds of almost all the views is there there is a consequence for brokenness for sure. and rebellion, yeah, so maybe so maybe just to clarify that 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 There is in both the Old and New Testament, a consistent message of when we, when we are in rebellion and brokenness and from relationship with God, that's one of the unifying, I think one of the unifying grounds between all the views is that there is consequence or as a result of that. Does that make
2: sense? Yeah. But the consequence is death. And so, like, so the Jews didn't view it that way. The Jews viewed, because they were building an earthly kingdom. Remember that? Right. They they viewed uh, this life really mattered. And so they believed your consequence was your life was cut short. So think of the people who were complaining in the desert and the, you know, or when they came against Moses in Deuteronomy, and it it says the earth opened up and swallowed them up. It doesn't say they went to hell and were tortured forever. Right. They didn't make it into the promised land. And so this that's the issue is this they believed this life really, really, really mattered. There's so many Psalms on it. So they believed a long life. I mean, how many verses say a long life is a blessing from the Lord? Well, I wouldn't want to live to be 140, <laughs> you know, 120, but they were building a kingdom. I mean, they were building an earthly kingdom. And so they viewed that your life was cut short here on this planet and that was the consequence. And if you read the Psalms, David talks about that over and over. You yeah. know, they've dug a pit; they've fallen into the own, their own pit that they have dug. So that is their consequence. Their life was cut short. Their life was over. And but that what we have done in the West then is we take well because we believe hell's eternal. Then in the Old Testament, all those people who were swallowed up just went to hell forever. It doesn't say that. And they didn't believe that. So
1: another thing, another thing that, um, and again, you guys don't have to agree with me on this, but something that I at least came across and really I'm saying this, uh, not to like necessarily show my cards about where I, where I land with this, though I'm, though I'm happy to at any point in this podcast, but really just to affirm what you said, Scott, about the importance of understanding culture and understanding, um, how people, how people's cultures of that time really did play into, into a lot, so much of this. One of the things that um, I came across, which I wasn't really aware of is how much of this idea of eternal existence came from Greek philosophers like Plato. And, um, and just that idea that we have, I'll say I have grown up with so ingrained in me, is you know that the Bible teaches every soul is eternal, eternal. Yeah. Um, that that really uh, so much of Scripture ascribes e- eternality, if that's the word, or eternalness, <laughs> whatever the word is um, as a gift. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, that that it really ascribes it to God alone, and mm. and that that's right, exactly what you just said. That if if we have it, it's a gift from Him. Um, yes. So again, I'm you know that that plays shows my hand a little bit, but my, my point in saying that more is to emphasize again, just how much cultural understanding really is woven into all of this conversation more than we realize.
2: Yes. Eternal conscious torment is a pagan concept. It, it just is. It It is, it is birthed in paganism and Roman philosophy and culture. Like but they, though, they, they, because we take that one verse from Solomon, I believe, in Ecclesiastes that says, like, he's, he's put eternity in man's heart, right? Mm-hmm. So <laughs> we take that as man is eternal. That means, in my opinion, the Holy Spirit was speaking through Solomon to say, there's something more out there that we should try to grasp because it's a gift from God. Mm-hmm. But it, I don't necessarily believe that means that all man was made eternal. And I can't find that the Jews believe that for sure. Like, yeah.
0: I yeah. I was just listening to um, an episode of this podcast called "The Bible for Normal People." Um, oh, I love that! Yeah, Pete Ends is great. Yeah, so Pete Ends and is talking about the afterlife, and they mention Ecclesiastes as one of the only places in the Old Testament where they even talk about a life after death. And really what they do is the person who's writing Ecclesiastes is like, I don't know, (laughs) maybe what if there is something after this? I don't know where the soul goes. And that's kind of it. It's all
2: meaningless. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Which I love Ecclesiastes,
0: but you know, the putting our stake in this idea of, we think we know what eternity is and we have all these assumptions about it. And then you look at the text that we supposedly base our faith off of. And it's like, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not, I don't know. Actually, it's like, oh, wait, then who, <laughs> where, did, where did this come from then? Apparently from Roman
2: say Yeah, that's what I meant when I said that we take our current concept and take it back into the Old Testament. And you just can't do that. You can't do that. And even like, you know, Ben was talking about punishment, right? Like you got Cain and Abel and Cain does the unthinkable and then blames God for it and all kinds of stuff. And God still redeems him mm-hmm. <laughs> like and so and even sodom and gomorrah right everyone mm-hmm. loves to use that one the issue with uh western theology i believe is we cherry pick verses and create entire theologies around them and you have to read the entire bible from front to back and yes sodom and gomorrah i believe it was an event I, and people always ask me do you believe these events happen i was like yes i do their perception of the event might be different though, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it did happen. But then you fast forward to Ezekiel and he says, I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and Gomorrah. It clearly says that And Isaiah is all about death, destruction, restoration, death, Mm -hmm. destruction, restoration. That is the main theme of the entire Bible is redemption and restoration. And so when you talk on punishment, those are two, you know, retributive or restorative, retributive or restorative. Those are the two ones that always Comes about it, and that word in Greek is kolasis, kolasis, and they know it from Aristotle and Plato how they used it. It's a, it's a, it's to prune a tree. Mm. So when he talks about, and I will cut them off. You know, I am the vine, and when I cut them off, in judgment, it's kolasis. It means I will refine them, I will prune them, but I don't want to sound like too Calvinistic in the sense that we play a role in this. Mm -hmm. Our choices matter. We can, we can say yes to the pruning. We can say yes to love. We can say yes to those things. And so, and I think another one of the major issues with all this is we, we Westerners start because of, we have a law-based atonement theory. The covenant was with Abraham. The covenant was with Abraham for the world. He made a special covenant with the Jews, but the covenant with mankind was made through Abraham and that has always struck me. No one ever wants to talk about Abraham. And here's why. Because he makes a covenant with him. He 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 cuts up two pieces of animal or whatever. And then Abraham falls asleep. <laughs> mm-hmm. So while they're supposed to make the covenant, Abraham is sawing logs. He wakes up. God, the torch is going through the pieces. And right from the beginning of time, or at least that covenant, God was saying, I'm the one who fulfills this covenant. Mm-hmm. You just believe that I have fulfilled this covenant. Abraham still doesn't get it. And he goes to him and he's like, Look up into the stars. That's how big your your ancestry will be. How many stars are there? I mean, <laughs> come on. Yep. Look at the sand on the seashore. That's how many, and that's how how your fruit will be, basically. How many sand so no one ever wants to talk about that covenant with humanity. We just jump right to the law-based covenant that he's dealing with Moses in. And that was a totally different thing. That was a totally different thing than the covenant with Abraham. And so I think that's, that's another important thing to look at as the flow of scripture. And you just see, and you get to the prophets. I mean, it, there's, there's over a hundred verses in the Old Testament talking about ultimate restoration. <laughs> there just is. So anyways, that's why it, eternal conscious torment definitely came from the pagans.
0: All right. Uh, case closed. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you did mention uh, ultimate reconciliation. But before we get there, let's talk about annihilation um, really quickly beforehand. Um,
2: so it's an easy one.
0: Yeah, that's an easy one there. I mean, with maybe less so with eternal conscious torment. But I think there's definitely a lot more scriptural evidence um, for somebody who, choosing between annihilation and ultimate reconciliation. Uh, so let's talk a little bit more about the, what scripture says about, you know, annihilation, this idea that there's a hell that exists that if you don't choose Jesus, believe in God, you'll go there. And then at some point you'll, you'll die.
1: Whoever, whoever just wants to jump in.
2: I think that's where Ben lands. So let's let him go.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as a, as a preamble to answering that question, I will say for me, what's been, fascinating and even freeing and enjoyable about this journey is I I didn't, I didn't grow up in a, in an evangelical cultural context where other views of hell, uh, were for me, like even known. I mean, maybe those around me did know them and they felt like they were protecting me quote unquote from, from other options. So, uh, full disclosure, like this is a newer, this is a newer exploration for me. So I, I would say, um, if, if, and wherever I land, I land pretty softly, uh, not because I'm afraid to have conviction, but only because I feel, feel like I'm still very new in this journey of learning. For sure. Um, but yeah, that is, that is where I would land if I, if I needed to be pinned down somewhere. Um, and, and I do really appreciate a lot of the, the thoughtfulness from, uh, people who are much smarter than me, like like John Stott and his views on on annihilationism specifically, um, I do think that there's you. I don't sense uh, nor see logically uh, that one has to do any. I would say any like scriptural dancing or, <laughs> you know, like there. You don't have to leap very far to get there. Um, I do see yep. a lot of the uh, scriptural evidence for it. Um, and, and even, even the few, uh, standalone passages that seem to, to, uh, not promote, but, um, support eternal conscious torment. It's, it's easy for me to see just as solidly how those support annihilationalism and that actually annihilationalism, not only does specific scripture support it, but that also, I think what what drew draws me to it. Um, and I know this is true for a lot of people who are drawn to it is how it does really seem very consistent with the character of God that you see in the arc, in the arc of, of his story. Um,
2: and it, it logically makes sense. Yep.
1: That it, that it does really, you know, in my opinion, it does maintain the justice of God and the holiness of God, which, um you know I know is an important aspect of our faith, but at the same time, just as much, if not in other ways more, if we can put gradients to it um really does promote and support the the mercy and the compassion and the and the kindness in the sense of God. Um, yeah. So for me, uh, that, that is where I land softly. Um, (laughs) and, uh, though I do, I do resonate with one thing. I, I read this like 15 page letter that John Stott, uh, wrote to a friend as they were dialoguing about this. And his, his friend was basically like trying to pin him down as well. Um, and one of the things he said, if I can find, yeah, the quote is, he says, in the end, I believe that most Christians, should take a stance to remain agnostic on this question of hell. Mm. The fact Mm. is that God alongside the most solemn warnings about our responsibility to respond to the gospel has not revealed how he will deal with those who have never heard it. Abraham's question will not the judge of all the earth do right from Genesis 18, 25 is our confidence too. And, And I love that. Like I love even just referring to Abraham's, Question, sort of his rhetorical question, like, won't God do right? Um, that's, that's ultimately what I, uh, what I hold on to. So yeah, I do believe that the annihilationism uh, there's strong biblical support for it. Um, just the idea that the, the consequence or the punishment or whatever term you want to use for it um, is eternal, but, but not the duration in the sense that the fire, uh, fire does what fire is supposed to do. You know, a, a log in our fire doesn't burn perpetually; um, it burns for a time, but then eventually it's gone. Um, and that's that's a very simple analogy of what the annihilationist view would hold to, as the the punishment's eternal, um, but the experience of it, the duration of it, is not.
2: Yeah. And Jesus talked about that when he said, "Like, do not fear the one who can kill the body, yep. but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Hades." By the way, yep. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's it logically makes sense because you're um, Jesus is life. He is life, and he is love. And this is we'll talk about this with ultimate reconciliation. But God is love. God acts in justice. God has wrath. However, it doesn't ever go outside of his love. <laughs> so, to some people, his love feels like wrath. You know, I, I use it, the example of abuse victims. Mm-hmm. Like, we all know people who keep going to just jerks, you know, mm-hmm. and abusers and stuff. And it's what they know. And it's almost like a sick, twisted comfort mm-hmm. to them that they're being abused. So, then when they feel real love, it almost feels fake. It feels not genuine, and they re- and that that actual love. I mean, and this is proven now by science that that real love it actually is harmful to them. It it feels like pain to them because they're so used to this distorted love, and so annihilationism, in my view, is definitely coherent with scripture. It's it's to me the second best option for sure. <laughs> um, but if you are if you are denying love, which is your existence, Jesus is your existence. You basically fall into non being you, 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 you just, you just kind of crumble within yourself into non being because you're denying the source of life and love. And so that's how I think annihilation is and how long that is. I don't, I don't know, yeah, but same. Nope. It, just, it just seems like there's uh that word destroy means destroy. It means to completely annihilate. It means to completely not exist. That's what the word means. So. Uh, But then, you know, you fast forward to Paul and he's like, well, you yourself will be saved, but as one through flames, like whatever Mm -hmm. wasn't of God's kind or love's kind will be annihilated out of you. But I. It does hint at, but you yourself will be saved, (laughs) So, but that's universal reconciliation, (laughs) but it's it's totally um, I know plenty of Calvinists who are now coming to that stance because it's just once like like you said, once you look at like, is man eternal in the first place, or is it a gift? You know, I will give you eternal life. Right. And in John 3, 16, even like when he says uh, in John 18, 3, 18, those who don't believe are dead already. Mm. I mean, Jesus clearly said it. He wasn't talking about the afterlife. That word perish in Greek, actually, it means like right now. It yeah. doesn't mean in the future. And we've taken that as into the future. And he's like, if you don't accept love and you don't, you know, accept Christ, the life of your being, you're already dead. And you're watching it. I mean, you you watch it all the time. I I can live it on a daily basis. Yeah. I can live hell on a daily basis. And so it just seems like whatever that next age is, people can deny that and they just sink into non they they de evolve. Mm-hmm. They basically de-evolve into nothingness. Mm-hmm. And 'Cause I do agree with C.S. Lewis that he's not gonna force that love on anybody either. So that's
1: that's what I was that's where I was gonna go next, actually. And I don't know, like I said, I'm I'm so new to all of the study, I don't know if what I'm about to say is consistent with the annihilationist view or if it falls in another camp or or if I'm mixing or what I'm doing. But um I am also drawn to um it's not just Lewis, but we'll we'll keep using Lewis as as uh the main the face of it, Lewis. yes, that's right. <laughs> um, I am drawn and believe in that concept that, um, you know, the the people that are in hell, the, defined however you want to define it, are are there because of their, like that's that's what they want.
0: They're choosing to be.
2: They're yeah. choosing it.
1: And yeah. to your point about the addict, I have another friend, um, uh, another good friend and and pastor and their church also is a partner of, of Uncharted. And we have great conversations about this as well. And he actually is also a counselor. And it was interesting that just a few minutes ago, Scott, you referenced an addict because he actually deals with, with actual addicts and his counseling. And he's like, Ben, that has been the best um, picture that I can get of, of any sort of understanding of hell is he, he says, I have people tell, tell me, the behavior I'm doing, I would not wish on my worst enemy, but I don't want to stop doing it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And he's like, to me, that's, that's hell. Like they're living yes. in hell and that's what hell quote unquote will be. You know, it's like, I, I know just that, I, that feeling of like, I know that this is horrible to the point. I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy, but I'm also going to keep choosing it. And I was like wow yep. yeah that's that's a pretty powerful illustration of what that what that can be like and feel like so anyways, again, I don't know where that really falls, but of- of course lewis's uh what is it great divorce yep um I think gives a really great picture as well um so
2: but he was, yeah, Lewis cracks me up. I, I've never seen a guy who can cross so many denominational <laughs> lines and be, ex, and be accepted. That's right. Like, mm. like I had, he didn't believe, you know, the Bible's an errand. He didn't believe Jonah was a real person. He, I mean, like, he believed a third of the Bible was, like, mythology because God loves a good story. And for some reason, this dude gets a pass. For
1: <laughs> yeah. If, you, if we quote Lewis and it's sort of like game over, well, you're good. Right?
2: Well, yeah. well, but CS Lewis's mentor, uh, was George McDonald and George MacDonald was a Scottish theologian who was a staunch universalist. Mm-hmm. So if you read some of their correspondence with each other, my personal belief is Lewis could never get to that point because he knew it would pretty much cost him a lot. Um, George McDonald was for sure a universalist. <laughs> and he was, he was ardent about it. And so
1: that reminds me of a, a, a quote from one theologian. I can't remember his name, but he, he basically, he basically says, I'm, I'm not a universalist, but God might be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Emily, what are, what are some of your thoughts? I feel like, uh, I just dominated the conversation there for a few minutes. No, that's great.
0: Um, um Yeah, well, let's move in to talk about ultimate reconciliation. (laughs) You 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 kind of sidestep that (laughs) a little bit. You
2: all got excited just (laughs) talking about it. You know you got excited.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, let's talk about uh, ultimate reconciliation then. This idea that eventually all people will be restored to God. Essentially, everybody's going to go to heaven at some point. Maybe not immediately, but it is there. So this is this probably, if I had to pick one, I would, I would fall into this camp. Okay. Yeah.
1: Let's hear a little,
2: well, you're let's... supposed to be a hopeful. I hope the early church fathers, I'm not even kidding and I'll prove it. <laughs> <laughs> if you weren't a hopeful universalist in the early church, you were considered the heretic mm. because Jesus said every day we're supposed to pray the Lord's prayer, right? Uh, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Fast forward, it says, it is God's will that all should come to (laughs) the knowledge of the truth. I'm not even kidding. They prayed those two prayers together. Every single early church father up until 700 AD was a hopeful universalist, Mm -hmm. except for the lawyers. (laughs) Tertullian Tertullian was really the only one I can find who was ardent, eternal conscious torment and he was a lawyer because it was a law-based approach Mm. to everything calvin was a lawyer augustine was a lawyer luther was a lawyer they're all lawyers and so they came at this with a um a law-based approach that's how penal substitution came in which wasn't even around until a thousand a.d by the way (laughs) but so yeah. Ultimate reconciliation. And I feel like we should do a little logic after this. Like, let's talk the logical yeah. side of all these in a minute, because that's really important. It really is because God gave us a brain to think, too.
1: So um, so you're it, you're saying Emily is a is a hopeful person is saying, what I'm hearing. Saying I'm
0: right. Yeah. <laughs> OK.
1: So let I, I'd like to hear from Emily, like what what has drawn you up to this point? Because to you're surprised speed, yeah.
0: that I'm a hopeful person.
1: Um, I mean, a little bit. <laughs> like usually, you're usually, usually in our staff meetings, me. <laughs> I don't, I don't get a lot of hopeful response from you to my ideas. Cool. I I'd say I'm not
0: generally an optimist.
2: <laughs> I feel like you should be a full universalist, and then you'll be hopeful all the time. <laughs>
0: so. No, it's funny. It's funny that uh, we already talked about C.S. Lewis, because um, I'm like realizing as I. Get older, like m- almost all of my like foundation beliefs on Christianity is from C.S. Lewis and specifically from the Chronicles of Narnia. <laughs> There's
2: <laughs> I, great theology. There which- is. There was no penal substitution in, in <laughs> Nardia, no. Remember, it was he. He basically paid Satan. In a yeah, a yeah. He beat. He paid death. He didn't pay the father.
0: Yeah. Well, I. I mean, I grew up reading these books constantly. I like probably have them memorized. It was my family read them all together. And in the last battle, which is, I mean, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what the Chronicles of Narnia are, I find that hard to believe. But <laughs> series of children's books. Uh, fantasy world, lots of Christian theology themes. And the last battle is kind of like the end (laughs) of the world. You know, Narnia is destroyed and all the good guys get to go to heaven. And I mean, that sounds very simplified Um, and it's beautifully written and descriptive, but essentially all the good guys are in heaven and they see uh, one of the bad guys who's there, you know, this soldier for the other country who was fighting them who didn't believe in Aslan the lion who worshiped this other God who was cruel and bad and bloodthirsty. Whoa. And essentially they're like, Hey, uh, what are you doing here? How did you, how'd you get into heaven? <laughs> <laughs> and the guy's like, I was asking myself the same question, <laughs> but I had this conversation with Aslan and Aslan's basically like, well, you were worship, You thought you were worshiping Tash, this bad God, but <laughs> really we're pursuing truth and goodness and beauty. And that's, that's me. That's not Tash. So, you were just calling me by the wrong name. And so you're welcome in my country. And as like a seven-year-old, I was reading that. I'm like, great, (laughs) cool. (laughs) This is, this is awesome. Like I was told, you know, God knows people's hearts. And so he welcomes anybody (laughs) who will have him, who chooses him. It doesn't matter if they're calling him by the wrong name. And, um, as I grew up in my faith and started, you know, looking into things more, seriously and critically as a teenager or in college, um, kind of maybe feeling a little guilty or being pressured into thinking, like you were saying earlier, like you just can't handle that, you know, the reality of things, you know, um, you know, Aslan's not a tame lion Mm -hmm. all the time. Like maybe, uh, you just, you just don't like this idea that, you know, bad things might happen. So you're afraid of it. Um, but as I've matured out of that too, kind of realizing, well, no, I just, I think I just believe that still, but I just have a better vocabulary around it. (laughs) Like this, I, this made sense to me as a child for a reason. Um, That doesn't mean it's childish. You are supposed to have a childlike faith anyway, but this concept Mm -hmm. that God loves people so much that he um, like gives them grace, even beyond what we consider grace is not really that radical and is not something that is is weak and childish. Um, It's not something I believe just because I liked it more than reality. Um, So I think that's why I'm a universalist. (laughs) So Scott, would you say you're also a universalist or a hopeful universalist?
2: I am for sure a hopeful universalist. um, And I gravitate towards it often. Because I I can't not see it in the scriptures anymore. I know that sounds, and I wasn't looking for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and I think I think sometimes again we we so the early church fathers believed the scriptures were spiritual. Even Paul said that. Paul said the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. And he's talking about like you reading the scriptures in a fundamentalist way kills the scriptures. It just does. And they there's always a a spiritual lesson behind. So like I personally believe in the Adam and Eve story as a legit story. It's definitely a poem too. <laughs> if you read one and two mm-hmm. and three, I don't care. I honestly don't care because the spiritual message, I never wake up in the middle of the night thinking, was it six days of creation? You know, like like mm-hmm. when, when when I'm struggling with something or like, you know, there's there's suffering going on in my life. I That just doesn't matter to me. And I think, that is what really helped me see things within the scriptures, even like little hints of it. And once you see the little hints, you start seeing the bigger hints. (laughs) So first off, the universalism does not mean that everyone just walks right in. Mm. Like it it doesn't mean that. Um, And that's where people, and what I've found people who are really vitriolic against this, it's like, you could almost see like an anger in them. Like, what the hell am I doing this for then? Mm -hmm. Why am I tithing? Why am I giving this? You know, and, and I always kind of push back on that being like, are you really doing it? <laughs> no, I'll be straight up. Like the people who have called me a heretic, and I mean, I had a dude in town call me an Antichrist from stage, wow. from stage. Wow. And we've had our staff members accosted out in public at concerts, for going for, for being at, by Christians, for being at Zootown. And I always ask those same people, when was the last time you shared the gospel with your neighbor or your coworker? And they always deviate quickly from that. (laughs) So the amount of time and energy that they put in to try to call this heresy, and I'll prove to you it wasn't, Mm -hmm. um, and that we're leading people to hell, they're not spending that same amount of energy. If you really believed that your neighbor was gonna go to hell and be tortured for all eternity, what are you doing? Have you Mm -hmm. invited them over for dinner? Have you done anything for them? Or have you put up the sign, get off my lawn? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I had this this one guy who, he was very close to me and he was an older gentleman and um, he has a cabin, I won't name it where, but he's got these, these uh, neighbors who are these super party people, like party party people. And I just asked him straight up. I was like, have you ever gone and shared the good news with them? If you're mad at me, have you? And he said, no. <laughs> so, like, <laughs> then you don't believe it. You don't believe they're going to burn in hell for all eternity. You don't believe that. So I think a lot of people just want to believe they have a belief instead of actually understanding what that belief is. And so we'll talk about that with the logical side. This does not mean that people just walk right in and it doesn't matter what you do here. That's not what this means, mm-hmm. but what it does mean, and this is where I do take it literally <laughs> John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He either did or he didn't. Like, (laughs) did he or didn't he? And then Jesus said on John 12, or I believe John 12, he said, now the ruler of this world has been thrown out. Today is the judgment of this world. The cross was the judgment of the world, where Jesus said, and Paul affirms this in 2 Corinthians 5, not guilty. There's so much language in there. Colossians 1.20, you have been reconciled by the blood of his cross. He has redeemed all things within himself. There's a mystery to that. I don't know how he redeems things within himself. I don't know that. But Mm -hmm. those words in Greek are finished words. They're done. It's over. So I believe every single person on the planet is forgiven and they are no longer judged for their sin because he either took it or he didn't. Mm. C.S. Lewis also said hell is locked from the inside. Mm, right. Right? He was hinting at something there. <laughs> so, I believe we're, you know, it's in the in the spirit of Advent. <laughs> <laughs> Why does the Western church talk about the birth of Christ one day a year? The incarnation is the gospel. Jesus yeah. Christ is the new Adam who took all humanity in himself. He All of humanity was taken in his birth, all of it. It's over and over and over in the New Testament. You read any early church father, Athanasius, all them, that is all humanity. When he died, he died all of humanity's death. When he rose from the grave, he rose all of humanity with him, and it's seated at the right hand of God. I mean, it says that. (laughs) Their nature, he took their nature with him. So, therefore, that is a dangerous thing too, because now everyone who dies is resurrected because Jesus has been resurrected. So we are no longer discussing if someone is agreeing with a, 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 a theology. It's, you're either accepting a person or you're denying a person. So people who, um, who die without Christ, and again, we, we should talk logic after this, but they're still resurrected. The problem is everyone has Christ because Christ lives in all of man. Paul said that. Let me tell you a mystery. The Christ lives in you. The hope of glory. Like he talked about his conversion where Christ, God showed him the Christ was in me before his conversion, the Christ was in him. When Jesus goes and meets the woman at the well, he says, you know, she's talking about outside stuff, right? And he goes, no, it'll be a a fountain within you bubbling up. So now, yes, we can deny that reality, but then Jesus says, but the darkness will not extinguish the light. It will not. Go back to Mark 9, the hands cut off, all that. He goes, all of you will be salted with fire. All of you. Verse 50, but salt is good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that restorative language is over and over and over. And so Ben, yes, you mentioned a log that gets burned in a fire. That's one aspect of fire. It also, that next season, a bunch of green grass grows. I mean, I live in Montana where it seems like it's on fire all the time. And a few years ago, the Mount Sentinel right outside of Missoula burned this one stretch before they put it out. It it was the most beautiful sp- thing we've ever seen when it because so the rest of the mountain was brown and this one stretch was green and flush and beautiful. And I'm like, they should burn that sucker every year mm-hmm. just because it would be so much prettier. Mm-hmm. That is the essence of fire. I mean, fire also purifies. I mean, it just does, you know, carterization, whatever you want to call it. So universalism says that in the next age, people who are resurrected without Christ, they're already dead. I mean, it's almost like they're the walking dead. However, does God give up? That's the question. Does Mm -hmm. God give up?
1: there's a lot to me in, in what you both said that honestly is, is compelling to hopeful universalism. I think one of the things that maybe some people I've heard jump on with it is, um, well, if everybody is sort of ultimately saved, then what's the purpose of the cross. So I have, I have my thoughts and how I'd respond to that, but I'd be curious to hear, um, your guys' response to that? Uh, If it, if, in other words, if everybody's just going to get saved anyways, then, then what's the whole point of the cross?
2: Because they never would have been able to without the cross. (laughs) It was the door. I mean, it was, but again, this, this goes into atonement theories, which is a totally different thing, but the cross wasn't just the place. The cross wasn't the place that Jesus could finally forgive us. The cross was the place where he showed God has always forgiven us. God did not kill Jesus. We killed Jesus. Peter said that in Acts 2. You know, you guys crucify the Lord. And then remember Paul says they would have never done this if they would have known what the power of it was, you know? The cross is not just a place of forgiveness. It's a way of life. He was showing Mm -hmm. us what the kingdom is, that it's self-sacrificial life. And so I think when... It was a big trick then. So then they thought they held Jesus because he died. Well, you can't, he, it says God was in Christ, in Christ Jesus, reconciling the cosmos to himself. So in my view, again, he goes into Hades. They thought he could stay there. He couldn't because light death can't hold him. And he cleaned that place out. He cleaned that place out. The ultimate piss on your face to the devil thing. Like really, <laughs> it really was. And so the cross was the place that we scapegoated Jesus. We blamed God. And I actually think the cross was the place that God took responsibility for giving man free will. Because I did not ask to be born, and I sure as heck didn't be asked to be born into sin. (laughs) The cross was the place where free will, he took responsibility for free will. And so I think... That whole argument that says, what's the point of the cross to defeat sin and death? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's That is the, the problem with that that crowd that says that. And I get it. I get why they think that is, what's the point across to you then, guys? Like, what did it actually accomplish? In the penal substitution reformed viewpoint, I really don't even know why Jesus had to die, bro. Why did he die? He didn't defeat sin and death. He didn't forgive people's sins. He obviously didn't take the Father's wrath. Why did he even have to die in that worldview? What did he accomplish? Or was it John the Baptist being like, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? Yes, he does. And I mean, it's just, I actually believe, so this is where I love universalism. God is the ultimate winner. Mm -hmm. He actually wins. He really wins. What doesn't win is he loses billions of people and there's nothing he can do about it. That, that doesn't sound like a winner to me.
1: So uh, again, as someone who's who's more recently exploring all of this, would you say that it's a common or, or frequent misconception that hopeful universalism diminishes the significance and the centrality of the cross?
2: Yes, major misconception, because we have been trained in the last 200 years to make Jesus our Lord and personal savior. It's all about us. You make the decision. It's about your salvation. Billy Graham revivals was about you, 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 you. And then we read the Lord's prayer, our father, our sins, our food. They're all plural meanings. Like, you know, it's all. Mm -hmm. So you, the second, so yes, you have to believe you. I'm not saying love doesn't demand a choice, whatever that looks like in the age to come. You can deny that. I don't know. But he is the savior of all mankind. Either he is or he isn't, mm-hmm. and so I don't. I think it makes the cross look that much more awesome that he literally forgave people's sins who didn't even know they had sinned yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. and so I, yeah. So I think again, it comes from a, a Western individualistic mentality of the world that. Mm-hmm. It's about my personal salvation. It's about, you know, and we're we're all part of this. My rights, my this, my that. And if I can get around to loving my enemies, then I might try, you know? And Mm -hmm. it's like, we will take, this is what amazes me about myself, about myself is I will take a verse in Revelation about the lake of fire and all this stuff, literal. And then we have Jesus's own words in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, telling us exactly how we should be living. And we're like, I'll think about it. (laughs) (laughs) I won't like turning the other cheek, all kinds of stuff. We're like, "Ah, I mean, that's a pretty good principle. Uh, Maybe. (laughs) But I mean, he's directly telling us this and he wasn't inaugurating a new kingdom. He was telling us what the kingdom has always been.
1: Yeah.
0: Make sure you come back next month for part two of their conversation with Scott that talks more about the practical implications of these three different views and how they directly impact international missions and our individual responsibility towards other people. In the meantime, you can check out the show notes where we'll have resources that we mentioned and some resources that Scott recommends that he used in preparing for his sermon series at Zootown. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next episode.